I'd like for you to find the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6. Now, Hebrews chapter 6, through the centuries and, and the time of the church, church age, church history, Hebrews 6 has been a chapter where there's been a lot of debate, contention, side choosing. In the time of the Reformation, there was a great debate between the Armenians, which most Christians today are, they don't know what it is, but they are, and the Calvinists over the idea of whether if you had truly been born again and saved, could you then be lost if you're not careful and be unsaved? The Arminians say that's what this chapter, the part we're going to look at today, is all about. Even though you've had a born-again experience, if you're not careful, you'll be unborn again and you'll be lost. The Calvinists say, oh, no, we believe in the preservation of the saints, that, that when God elects you to salvation, that He will also keep you, and though you struggle with things, or though you this way and that way about some things, He will bring you through, because He that started a good work in you, He will finish it, and He will not let you go astray. And that's John 10. Anyway, that debate has gone back and forth, because people point to some great saint who quit and gave up, had an affair, got drunk, left, and all of that. And they try to show that even though you're a Christian, you can fall away. Whereas the Calvinists say, no, if you're a Christian, you're elect. If you're born again, that means you've been elected to salvation. Anybody can learn how to act saved. Anybody can sing, praise, dance, pray, give. I mean, anybody can learn how to do what we do. But only those in whom the Spirit of God is will live this life. Let's read this. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again into repentance." And that's more or less what the debate is all about. Because there are five things listed here that should be the normal experience of all Christians. And these five experiences seem to have happened to a lot of people who fall away, who depart, who give up. for Whatever the reasons are, sometimes they're gradual. You just start giving yourself a little room. You start backing off a little bit here. You start compromising a little bit here. You start fudging a little bit there. Next thing you know, you're giving up a whole lot of room, and then you can't believe you like you used to. You don't stand like you used to. You don't have the get up and go like you used to, and you walk away. And yet, in the last days, when you fall away, you don't have to just depart from religion. You just have to stop believing because the departure is from the faith, not from religion, not from church activities, but it's from the faith, living faithfully with God on His terms as He states it. That's what a Christian does. And many people, it seems today, especially in this hour, which I do believe is the last days, a lot of people are just gradually drifting apart from that. They haven't quit the Lord as far as religion, but they certainly aren't 
standing with him in their life like they should either. And it's kind of a departure, but it's a subtle thing. We can't identify it. We don't want to say that because we don't want people to think that we're judging them. But see, I guess I can judge from the pulpit. But I see it. I see it. I hear it. I'm watching it. People I knew 30 years ago who uh, today don't believe anything like they once did because of the gradual shifting or trend or this paradigm, which I think is paradigm because dying is not digim. But anyway, uh, that's just me. And I see this trend, this shifting trend. And it's not good. In our text here, I want to use this as a text because I've chosen this because I believe the time we're living in right now is short. I really do. Every age has said that. Even in the Bible days, they said, you know, the time is short. Well, I do believe that especially now, today, right now, time is short. That the troubles in the world are not confined to little skirmishes. They are global now. One little insignificant country can raise havoc in the whole world with nuclear weapons now. That's never been a time in all of history like right now. And it only takes somebody who thinks he's serving some God who will give him 70 virgins to hit the trigger, to hit the button and start all this stuff. And it throws the world into chaos, but the Bible tells us that it will. We're warned in Scripture about the last days that will come and certain signs and events that will be taking place. And not only events in the world, but events in people's lives. Departure from the faith, giving up not giving heed, and so forth. And you see this, if you see it, there's kind of a troubling effect it has on you. Troubles your spirit. Because how do you deal with this? If people are so ingrained in the world and making a living and making money and, and they're not seeing what's about to happen now, how do you warn them? They've been warned before. They've been warned many times. Some people have heard the gospel so much, they're hardened to it. It's no longer a demanding thing in your life. It no longer arrests you and say, you better pay attention to what's going on. We're about to end. This thing's about to come down to the end. And so I do believe that we're in that time. I don't know when it is, but we're living in that time, which I do believe as I watch it, as I watch Modern religion, I believe that there is a huge turning away from the faith and turning to the traditions of man and the designs of man. And I believe that there is so much head turning in the church today. Nobody wants to deal with sin. Nobody wants to mention sin. Makes you uncomfortable. And if there was sin and it was somebody important, they wouldn't want to deal with it. And you let this stuff go and it festers. And it become full of spots like he read in Jude. He said, you know, you allow this stuff to take place in your church and it becomes festered and it be like spots and wrinkles in your feast and so forth. It's not good. So I see these things coming. And I think we need to be alerted to this because my message today is titled this, How It's Supposed to Be With Us. And as you read what I read, I'm not saying we're supposed to fall away and not be able to get back. That's not what I'm talking about here. But I'm going to mention these five positive events, five positive things that can happen in your life and show you that this is the way it's supposed to be, even though people who seem to have had these experiences fall away. 
The way it's supposed to be with us is verse 9. Would you look at verse 9? He said, But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, things that accompany salvation. If you're saved, all these five things have happened to you, but you never forsake them. If you're saved, because this is what salvation is all about. Now, the book of Hebrews itself is a book of warnings. I don't think, from my personal viewpoint, that the book of Hebrews is an enjoyable book to read from the standpoint of all the edifying things that it says, and it does say a lot of edifying things. But because of the tendency of Christians to live so vulnerable to this world and how easy it is to drift away. The book of Hebrews was written to these converts to say, now let me warn you, you put your hand to the plow, what did Jesus say? Don't look back. And yet when people do, they don't even realize they're looking back because it's not really a big deal. But he said, don't look back. If you put your hands on there, keep them on there. Otherwise, and then so on and so forth. For example, look in chapter 2. Just brief with me just a moment about Hebrews 2. At some of these warnings, as you read this book, like the first four verses, he said in verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 2, How shall we escape if we neglect? We're supposed to read that and realize that you've got a price to pay to live the Christian life. Not a place to go, a price to pay. It costs you something. If you are unwilling to pay the price, you may be in the right place, but not experiencing the ultimate. How shall we escape? He said in verse 3, if we neglect so great a salvation. Or then in chapter 3 and verse 7, the next chapter, he warns us again. Chapter 3, against the hardness of our hearts. From chapter 3, verse 7 through chapter 4 and verse 13. Several verses in there where as we read this, we're warned about the very thing we see. People hardening their hearts. Hardening a heart is like rejecting what somebody says because it doesn't fit in your program. What would people think of me if I live like that? I wouldn't get this job. I wouldn't have this friend or that whatever. And that's a cost you're going to have to face up to to live this life. So he said, not only how shall we escape, but he said, you're going to have to be careful that you don't harden your heart through unbelief. Or look in chapter 5. He said in chapter 4, you've got to labor to enter into that rest. It's not a waltz, it's a labor. Labor means an exhaustive action. It's labor. That type of thing, to enter in. And most people have no regard for the price we have to pay. I know you do. I'm just saying in the Christian world as it is, somehow or another, God has become some celestial Santa Claus. Just a good old guy up there who understands that, well, I'm just, come on. I mean, come on, man. Come, I mean, nobody's perfect. Come on. I mean, how can I, you know, come on. And they look around at everybody else that's in the church and they measure themselves by them. Well, if they're going, I'm going. And they see that God has no regard for that. And they think it's okay. And so they live that way because, well, the preacher says, come on, after all, you're just human beings. You can't be perfect. So enjoy God. Love your brother. Do your best. That's all. 
Well, that's not a message of Christianity. A Christian will do that. But there's a life to live. I mean, there's a dedication he wants us to make. Like in chapter 5, we're familiar with this from verse 11 on through the whole sixth chapter. A warning. A warning to you and me. A warning in chapter 5 there about being hard to teach. Being difficult to teach. Listen to me. Sometimes it seems, and again, I'm not referring to anybody. I'm not. But sometimes it seems that people act like they've been taught so much they don't have to hear everything else you say. As though everything was said a long time ago, I got it. I got it all. I don't need to listen. I don't need to be in church every week. I don't need to be somewhere and be a part of anything because, you know, I know enough on my own. And they're hard to teach. They've already got their minds set on what they believe. They're just hard to teach. Difficult to teach. In chapter 6, he said, you know, if you turn back, our chapter today, he said, if you turn back, it's over. A man who's truly repented or said he's repented and come to the Lord, and then he turns away from all of that, having tasted and seen and experienced and partaken, having been involved in a lot of spiritual things, and then he walks away from that. What could you say to him to bring him again to repentance? He already knows what you know. He's been there and done that. You start a verse, he'll finish it for you. He quit because he didn't have a heart to stay with it. Other things come along and they begin to tug and pull. And all you've got now is a memory of the way it was. Well, I'm telling you the way it's supposed to be. The title of the message is what we're going to read here in just a moment. Chapter 10, another warning. Our fourth warning is against... Sinning willfully and drawing back. The just shall live by faith. And he said, but if any man draw back, they are today as I speak by the bunches. It's hard to put your finger on that because the drawing back is subtle. It's inch by inch, little by little. Five years ago, we wouldn't think of not trusting God. Today, five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years later, we wouldn't dare do today what we did 20 years ago. Oh, what would people think? Oh, we didn't care what they thought then. We only cared what God thought. We were willing to trust the Lord with all of our hearts and not regret what we go through, not dread walking by faith. We got rid of stuff that we would depend on. We canceled stuff as our backup. We got rid of it. And said, God will take care of us. God will keep us. If he is for me, who can be against me? And everybody was alarmed at our new religious ideas and beliefs. Where did you learn that? Who told you that? And a dead church opened its eyes and said, oh, my. And we woke up dead dogs, as the Old Testament writer said. We began to see light. We saw things we never seen before. We began to, yes. And some of you know that there are people who did that once, who started out this way, grabbed a hold of the plow, whatever you want to call it. They started out well. And then today, they're trying to talk you out of faith. They're trying to talk you out of it. Uh, I don't know about, you know, yeah, I know we did that once, but back then it was a fad. Was it? Was it really? 
the move that God made on your life was a fad? That's not a good thing to say. You need to wash your mouth out with something. Lie or L-Y-E, lie or something. When God moves, He doesn't need to move but once. God only needs to speak once. I mean, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. They heard it. They rejected it. It only needs to speak once for you to be guilty in eternity. And all men, the Bible says, will face God in the end. And so Hebrews is warning us, like the fifth one, this falling short in chapter 12, falling short. And again, refusing to hear the word. We let the word slip, it says. So in the book of Hebrews... A Christian, especially a young Christian who reads this, is supposed to grasp this, that God who saved me, while he is for me and with me, he will not make me do what I'm supposed to do. I must be willing and obedient. This is not just church. This is a life that I'm called to live. I remember when God spoke to me as a basketball coach in a high school in Indiana. How can I give up all that I have worked for? I can't make my halftime speeches and be a Christian. Because the things I said were not proper. The way you talk to those poor little boys was not proper. And the things you say. I think, how can I coach? How indeed. I just found out that everything has to come under the light and the order of God. And if it doesn't, you walk away from it. You give it up. You put it out of your life. Because you're dedicated and committed now to live in this way. You read this book, it says, I warn you, five times. Maybe there's six of them, depending on how you count it. But anyway, our text today, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 and following, tells us how it's supposed to be for us as Christians. Let's begin with the first word he uses in verse 4, that he said, impossible for those who were enlightened. Now, enlightened, we use that word a lot. You can test yourself this morning. We talked to that last week. Test yourself. Have you been in this room? Those of you sitting here, has God enlightened you? Remember the verse we used once, at least once every other week. Ephesians 1, you'll memorize it before the Lord comes. When Paul said, I pray that God would give to you, this is church. These are not sinners he's praying this for. This is to church people. They don't just have it. He said, I'm praying for you that God will give to you the spirit or a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Comma. The eyes of your heart being enlightened. The Greek word photizo, which is our word for, we get photography. Something that bears an image, something that is seen, revealed, make known. He said, I pray that you will have that experience because apparently, like in Hebrews 5 that he warns about, apparently it's easy to be dull of hearing. You don't have to work at being dull of hearing. You just have to be busy. Have a lot of clutter in your life, a lot of demands on your life. And just be a little too busy. To, oh, I know I should do that. I know. I, but 
and you become dull of hearing. And when that begins to happen, then you wonder, what are you going to do with what you were illumined to? God shows you this. God shows you that. He illumines you. For example, when God illumines a sinner, what does He show him? When a sinner's eyes are open and a revelation from God about him comes, what does he see? Or what does he realize? If he doesn't see it with his eyes, but his mind, he realizes, comes to know something. He realizes that he's a sinner. All of them do. I did, you did, everybody you know does. Now, they might reject all that, but they heard it. As I said a while ago, the grace of God in Titus 2 that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It might have only appeared once, but it has appeared to all men. Even savages in Romans 1. Even people in the jungle that have never heard a preacher. They saw his handiwork. And in that way, God revealed the fact that there is a supreme being, not some post or some stick or some rock, but there is a living God, the creator of the world, and it's impossible to deny that. But they still worship their gods anyway, so they're guilty. They'll stand before a fair and just God and receive a fair and just sentence for their choices that they made in life. And so a sinner begins to realize that I am a worthless human being. I can remember my days in there. I go to church every week, sing in the choir in the Sunday school class, and I chase cars all week long. That's what dogs do. You're just not a very nice person spiritually. God listens to the jokes you tell, the stories you laugh at. The things you think of when you look at somebody in a wrong way and the thoughts you get in your mind and the nastiness of of that. God knows all of it. And one day a sinner realizes that God knows you. God knows your heart. Now you think you're having fun. And you think you're being cool. But there's not a thing in your life that you're doing that God is not compelled to judge. He may not judge you today or tomorrow, but one day it will come. You will stand before him and everything you did, you'll be reminded of. Because you'll remember, first of all, that time in which you may be sitting in church, watched a TV, heard a conversation, listened to a radio, read a book. And you begin to be aware of your sins. I remember being in a study hall class in Silver Creek High School over in Indiana once. I had study hall, you know. Do they still have that in school? Anyway, they did then. It's one period of all the six periods in school that was a time of study. And uh, the study hall monitor, which is what I was one class at one time a day, is just to make everybody make sure they're all quiet and not talking. You weren't allowed to talk out then. If you talked, you get sent to the principal's office, go out in the hallway and get a paddle. See how mean it was? I got sent to the principal's office one day for paddling the boy. They told me not to paddle him anymore. But there was a boy reading a, a book called The Cross and a Switchblade. Now, I was not a Christian. I moved back to that area, and I started going to church over in Charlestown, but I wasn't a Christian. And so this boy was reading The Cross and a Switchblade. 
It's not a textbook for Christ. I took it away from him. Give me that book. What are you reading it for? You want to go to the office? No. You study. So I got his book. And because it was quiet, I just sat there and began to read it. And I read the whole book. <laughs> the whole thing. I remember the sense of guilt that I was experiencing, personal guilt, as I knew inherently, nobody had to tell me, I knew what I was reading was a good thing and it was a terrible price that Dave Wilkerson paid, and, but it was right and I knew that that's the way it should be. And I knew in my heart, I'm not willing to do that. I would be afraid to do that. I wouldn't have anything. I'd be a nobody if I did that. I thought. I had God on my mind. And then it was a little bit after that and back in our church, a month, several months later, whatever, I got saved. It's just the little ways that God began to introduce himself to a sinner. And I was enlightened in the sense of being made aware of who I am and what I am. And that I can't do anything about it. I can't do better, stop anything. This is just the kind of person I am by my nature. I knew that. Everybody will know this at one point in your life. At least once you will know you are not and never will be good enough. You know that. Now what you do about that will determine your eternal destiny. If you have a revelation of God about this and it breaks your heart, it breaks your heart because God added to your conviction sorrow, godly sorrow. Because that's what Hebrews talks about, godly sorrow. And you begin to be concerned about your eternal life. I used to know if I died right now, I'd be in hell in just a moment. And there's no way possible to get out of there. It is forever and ever and ever. I didn't need a preacher to preach that at me, though they did. I knew that. I didn't know all the doctrinal details. I just knew that. And it really troubled me. But I didn't do anything about it. And that's what I'm saying here about Christians. Christians can be troubled about a lot of things they're enlightened about, but really do nothing with it. But if we have been enlightened, it is because the goodness of God opens your eyes to show you that He's going to have to judge you unless... Godly sorrow comes in, unless you repent of your sins. And you did. And the reason you repented is because God granted repentance. That's God's also. And He turned you around by His grace. That's what His enlightenment did to you. And now as a saint, light comes into you. You attend a meeting, you study, you pray, you listen. You have a heart for this now because God is inside. And you begin to listen to what he says. And I found a new way of living. I found a new life divine. And you begin to find a way of living you've never known before. Because light comes to the center. This is what enlightenment means. This is the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be learners and pupils of Jesus. That's what disciple means. Disciples of Christ are his followers. We don't follow what we think is good. We follow what he says is good. And we begin to follow him. And that's what he wants. Then notice in Hebrews 6, 
in that same fourth verse, once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift. Well, you can say the heavenly gift is the Holy Spirit because he was a gift sent down from heaven. Jesus said, when I go to the Father, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. Or you can agree with what he said in John chapter 6. He said that Jesus is the bread that came down from heaven. He was the bread of heaven. John six thirty three. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Taste. Now what does taste mean? When the Bible says we have tasted of the heavenly gift... The heavenly gift, I am sure he's referring to Jesus Christ, the Savior of man. The gift of God for the sins of man. Who took your place so that you can be free. Now what does it mean for us to taste of the Lord? We don't bite him and then he eats. Like on the communion table. I'm not a miracle worker. I've never done it. I've never turned the bread into his actual flesh. Never turned the, that cheap wine they use in some churches into his actual blood. But some people think you did. That's why the Catholics don't give you the wine to drink or the blood because you might spill it. They give you the little host, which they say is the body of Christ. But anyway, what does it mean to taste of the Lord? Put your finger here and turn to Psalms 34. What a wonderful psalm. What a good psalm. Boy, you could camp out here for a long time and have a good vacation. Psalms 34. And we could just say verse 8, because that's the one that says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. These 22 verses contain many promises for Christians. They are current, up-to-date, and God watches over this word right here to perform it for those who believe it. Not those that read it, but those who believe it. For example, just an example before we get to the tasting part. Verse 12. What man is he that desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Well, I do. Don't you? How do you do that? He said, well, then watch your mouth. Watch what you're talking about or who you're talking about. Or how you discuss things. Keep your tongue from evil. This is an open door. Keeping your tongue from evil is an open door to long life and good days. Not a dreaded tomorrow. But it doesn't matter about tomorrow. God's already in your tomorrows. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking God. Depart from evil. Do good. Seek peace. That's a promise. But he said in verse 8, you've got to find that out for yourself. It's one thing to read it and in that sense taste it. But it's something else to taste it in the spiritual sense. As I understand, the word taste has to do with to try the flavor of a thing, to taste of something, to see what it is. It's like there has to be some kind of an interest. You've done this before. What is that you're eating? Well, God forbid it's sushi. <laughs> what does the nasty stuff taste like? Well, sushi tastes like Brussels sprouts. <laughs> Topped off with a nice 
swallow of vinegar. It's pretty bad stuff. Well, it's good stuff, but it's bad. It's both. But you take a taste. I said, can I have a bite of it? Can I have a bite or a taste of that that you're eating? Let me see what that tastes like. Well, it's a kind of an interest that you have. You're curious. Now, curious is good. It won't save you. It can lead to it, but it won't save you. So in your curiosity, you want to know. So you take a taste of it. God said he will heal you, didn't he? God said he'll give you a long life in verse 12. You want long life? Good days and long life, which nobody believes is possible except Christians. You want to have a guarantee in your brief life that you can have a good life with good days? Do you want that? Then taste and see. Well, you read it and you say, well, I know it says that. No, I'm talking about experiencing that. Doing what he said. Will God supply your needs? Well, yeah, he'll supply you. How do you know he will? Well, he said he would. But you will only know that when you're broke. And then when you're broke or you don't have enough, or there's something you really want and you can't really afford it, then you'll find out whether or not you've tasted to see. If you say, well, I don't know what we're going to do now, then you've never tasted. You might have smelled it, but you didn't taste it. But when you taste the Word of God, you begin to partake of it. This word describes experiencing God. What a wonderful title, Experiencing God. It is a way of saying that I have tasted, I have tried, I have tested, I have sought, I have pursued, I have experienced. Now again, I don't know that a lot of people who have taken those initial steps stayed with it. But this is part of it. Are you with me? God offers us the privilege this morning of come and dine, the master calleth. The table is spread. God has welcomed us to his banqueting table. And it's full of promises. 8,000 dishes on the table. Everything on there he himself has prepared for you. These are things for this life that he has made possible for you to have. Did he not say in about the Holy Spirit that he has come to show you all the things that are freely given to you? 1 Corinthians 2, freely given. Christians balk at it because they never believed it, but they've tasted it, but it didn't do anything. Find your seat at the table. Take God at his word. Will he supply your needs? Well, then let him. But what will people say? They're going to say a lot. Let me tell you, they're going to say a whole lot about you before it's over. All your shine will be gone. You won't be near as cute as you used to be. Well, you look the same, but not to the world. You don't have the masculinity you used to be. You're kind of a dud now. God changes you. He's drawing you out of that world. You're tasting the powers of another world. The stuff that you're eating here does a different kind of work in you. Unless you only just taste it of it to see what it is, and then, I don't know, I ain't going to eat that. I'm glad I didn't order that. Will you call them things Brussels sushi? I'm glad I ain't eating that stuff. Whew. 
But he said, taste and see, verse 8. Taste and see what? What did verse 8 say? Taste and see what? Is he? How do you know he is? You can say, well, it says he is. Well, the devil can do that. How many know the Bible says the devil believes? The devil himself knows that the Bible is true. He knows every word of God is true. He knows that. He doesn't know that you know that. And the testing is to find out if you really do know that. Because most people that are tested, they don't lean on the word or they don't remain at the banqueting table. They get up and run because of fear. I might die. This might not work. What will people think? I'll lose my job. Oh, my, I could lose my life. I know Jesus said, take no thought for your life and don't worry about anything in your life and don't put anybody before me. But this is serious. And so they drift away. How easy it is to say you believe. How easy it is to read your Bible and say, isn't that good? But how hard it seems to trust it. Somehow God speaks wonderful things, but we're not sure that he will do what he said. So I wonder if a lot of people have tasted in the sense that they have received some things he says, but they're not sure they can stand on it. Whereas tasting for us takes us deeper, which is the way it should. We can taste the heavenly gift. Did you know that? Every week. Every day, opportunities await us every day of our life. There's not a day that goes by that we don't have another opportunity to taste of the heavenly gift, to inquire at His Word or in His holy temple or to seek and set aside a time to seek the Lord and just commune with God. Every day it's possible. I believe you get that flavor of heaven in your heart. You taste it as something that's really good. Oh, and some people, you know, they like steak or special chicken or some kind of fish. Whatever you like and you've tasted it once and, oh, man, that was good. You want it again. There's a place in Louisville that I like to eat. There's many places in Louisville to eat. If you're a visitor to Louisville... Lots of places to eat, but I found one place that I like. It's always right. It's always good. So to me, why go anywhere else? I just found something, and I know when I get there, it's going to be good again. Yummy, Ray, yummy in my tummy. It's going to be good again. But he said, taste and see. Find out if he's good. Again, I think in the movements of God, churches are full of people who are real giddy about you saying, the Word of God is true. Woo! But do they trust it in the time of difficulty? Because that's how we are tested. As I said a while ago, the devil believes a word. He can't trust God with it. He just knows that what God said is true. He knows it's true. But that's Christianity too. Oh, yeah, the Bible's true. I believe the Bible. I believe the leather's true on the back of the Bible. Well, will you trust it? I don't know if I'm ready for that. So he said, if you have tasted and we have, it should lead to an appetite for, to where we want to 
have more and more of that every day because this is how it should be with us. It's supposed to be. This is supposed to be our testimony, isn't it? That we found Jesus. Jesus found us. Jesus has invited us into his secret place. And the things that happen there change our life a little bit every time we go there. And things are so easily fixed by him in that place. And you grow in the Lord and you say, whom should I fear? What should I be afraid of? What God has given us to depend on is wonderful. Look in Hebrews 6. Go back to Hebrews 6 again. There is a temptation to stay in Psalms 34. That is so good. But in Hebrews chapter 6, in verse 4, he said, Thirdly, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Now, I don't think that means here that you have received the baptism in the Holy Ghost. I don't think that's what he's talking about because I think partaker here, because these are the ones that fell away. The one who partakes of the Holy Ghost is somebody who participates with the Holy Ghost. Didn't Judas? Was Judas one of those who went out two by two? Did the Spirit lead them out there and was not he prompted and anointed by the Spirit to do things? That can happen. Well, how can somebody be anointed to do miracles or heal people or be used of God to lay hands on people and heal people? How could people that are so mightily used of God that way not be right with God in the end? It happens all the time. How indeed could a preacher, one that I know of, preached against homosexuality and was caught in a homosexual act? How do you do that? It's not hard to do at all. The preaching part isn't. The other part's disgusting. But it happens all the time. How can you preach about fidelity in marriage and then turn around and have affairs in other places? How do you do that? Preach the Word of God with such power that people come forward every week and get saved, and yet you're doing that? How can this be? We would like to think that God knows what's going on here. He wouldn't anoint or equip somebody with power if they were doing that. It happens all the time. Judas was. Jesus confronted them all in the end when it was over. Remember Matthew 7? He said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. They said, wait a minute. Lord, did Lord, we, the, we were the miracle. We were the, 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 we were the 60s. We were the miracle workers. Lord, we, we prophesied to people and lives got straightened out and direction came and you gave them light as we spoke to them and prayed for them and they got healed. Remember what Jesus said? I never knew you. You let the Holy Spirit use you. You were there when a wonderful things happened. It doesn't mean that your heart is committed to Jesus. It never means that you have an unconditional commitment to Christ. For a lot of people, it meant you're going to make a lot of money with all the commercials they have now about that, all the T-shirts, been there, done that stuff. And a lot of people know this is going on in Christian circles, and they 
promote it anyway. This is the day we're living in. It's the hour we're in. That's why in the end, Jesus will say, I never knew you. In that day, it's coming. Almost here. Fakes, phonies, hypocrites, and people love to have it so, Jeremiah said. Remember that verse in Jeremiah 5? The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests bear rule by their own means. And my people love to have it so. And he ends that verse by saying, but what will you do in the end? What will you do in the end? Partakers of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a marvelous, wonderful experience. The Amplified Bible says five things about the Holy Spirit. He's a comforter. We need that. He's the intercessor. He prompts us to pray for things we don't know how to pray for. He's our advocate with the Father. He's our strengthener. He's our standby. That's what the Amplified Bible uses about receiving the Holy Spirit. All of these things come with Him. And yet there's a lot of people that have acted this way, seem to promote this way, talked a lot about it, but nothing was there. I don't know how you can say that you are motivated by the Holy Spirit to cheat, and lie, and still misrepresent, be a fornicator or a liar or a thug. I don't know how you do that. I know how people do that. I don't know how a Christian could. Because if you're a Christian, you don't do that. If you're a Christian, you have a heart for Jesus Christ, that heavenly gift. If you're a Christian, you've tasted of something you want more of as much as you can. If you've seen the Holy Spirit move ever in your lives, if you've had those moments you knew that something unique and different was happening in your life, that God was doing, and you were made a partaker in what He was doing, you were there and a part of it, you'll never forget that. But he has offered to the church the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And Christians, believers, the elect, really will receive that. In fact, it's so unique an experience that it can be imitated. You can imitate tongues. I could go... So I say, oh, whoa, that was the Spirit. No, it wasn't. That was me going... You could make up words and sound like an Indian. You used to play cowboys when I was a little boy, and I had to be the Indian half the time because my cousin was older. And uh, <laughs> we used to imitate that. It wasn't tongues, but you can do that. But the real baptism of the Holy Spirit is for the elect. For those who are going to heaven. It'll happen. These signs shall follow those who believe. Would you just for a moment put your finger right here and turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. Just for a moment. I want to show you something about the Holy Spirit. He said in Ephesians 1 and verse 13, In whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation in whom also, after you believed, what happens? You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. 
Remember Jesus said in Luke 29, he said, I send the promise of my Father upon you. So tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until he comes. That was the promise. It was the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And it says here, my Bible says, concerning Jesus, you trusted him after you heard the gospel about him, you taste and see of your salvation, whom also after you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. A seal is a signet of ownership. It's a declaration of ownership of whoever has the seal. These are mine. They are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Well, what about all these people that I don't believe in all this stuff, I don't want it? Those that are God's will be sealed. Do with that whatever you want to. They're out there in here. They are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. They will not only want it, but they will get it. It will come. Look in Ephesians 4, verse 30. Again, concerning this Holy Spirit... And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. You will make it. I said you will make it. You read Romans 8. If you are led by this same Spirit, you are indeed sons of the living God. For God does not send His Holy Spirit in anybody's life to magnify you, your ministry, or your feelings. It is entirely about God's kingdom. It has nothing to do with you except you're the vessel that he sends him to, in whom he operates, and in that way he works with you. The Holy Spirit doesn't do anything for you, but he shows you what to do. He is the comforter. He is the intercessor. He's the standby. He comes alongside to help, to encourage you. He won't prophesy for you. He'll tell you to prophesy. He'll give you the words, but you've got to speak. This is what he does. He's teaching you how to taste of the powers of another place where he came from. This is what he does. Would you go back to Hebrews chapter 6? Because he also said in Hebrews chapter 6, in verse 5, he said, And you have tasted the good word of God. Tasted of the good word of God. Isn't that good? Tasted of the good word of God. What does that mean again? Tasting is uh, experiencing it. You can sit in church. I did most of my young life. I had zero interest in anything ever happening to me or what was going to be said. I only wanted to go be there and wait for Miss Cartwright to get on the organ so the preacher quit preaching and we go home. I had no interest in it, never was stirred that I can remember until I got ready to be saved. But I remember, I remember in those early years about Sunday school class. Occasionally, you'd read something in Sunday school class. The teacher didn't know where the book of Ephesians was. Somebody had to tell her. That's, and that's the truth. God bless Sunday school teachers, whatever that is. The Word of God, people don't have an appetite for. I don't think church people come to hear you proclaim the Word. They said it in Isaiah's day. 
preach something else. Prophesy smoothly. I mean, tell us stories. I mean, you tell a good enough story, we'll be back and we'll support you. Just don't make us to be convicted. But if you've tasted of the good word of God, and something on the inside, that spirit prompts that word to your heart, you find yourself going, oh, man, can I really depend on that? Like Mark eleven twenty four, what things soever you desire, Jesus said, when you pray, believe you have received them and you shall have them. Ooh, is that good? I heard that. Let me indulge myself a little bit and do a little research and taste a little bit more of that. Let me see if that really tastes like what it sounds like. So you begin to dig in here and find something. Oh, boy, that was good. I want more of that. It's the Word of God. Put your finger here again. Turn to Psalm 119, right in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 119 and verse 103. Psalms 119. And verse 103. How sweet are the words unto my taste. Now, what does that mean? How could that mean literally what it says? Well, it doesn't. It's a figure of speech. God's words are likened to food that you really like, and when you eat it, you enjoy it. You don't dread hearing the word any more than you dread eating, I'll speak for myself here, a good Warm donut. We got a new donut place in town. I got one that was still a little warm. That nasty grease almost. You could squeeze it and that old nasty stuff would drip off. It's so good. And I have gone back for twosies. And they're still good. But if you've tasted of a good donut once in your life, you'll want another donut. And you'll find there's not just glazed donuts in there. They got them with colors on them. They shine. They got them different configurations. They're twisted. But they're all good. There is not one donut in there made with Brussels sprouts in it. Not even one. No sushi donut. Nothing like that. Now, folks, I'm talking about sushi. I've never eaten sushi in my life. It just sounds bad. The word doesn't good. This is not a good word. <laughs> sushi like saying shui. But anyway, again, he said, 119.3, How sweet are thy words unto my taste. Yea, sweeter than honey. Yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Let me tell you something as a preacher standing here this morning. I don't think that's true with everybody. I think there are people who have tasted and said, you know what? I enjoy to hear him preach. They said, Jeremiah said it. He said, they set before you as somebody who sings a very lovely song. They love to hear you. They hear what you say, but he said, they will not do it. Well, that's Christianity. I mean, that element is in Christianity. That's what tares do. But a person who's ever tasted this, had that prompting of the Spirit, you don't go back. You don't compromise that. You don't look for some way out of that. That's what you do. You give up whatever you have to do. You do whatever you have to do to line yourself up with this Word. And God blesses your life, blesses your choices. He blesses what you do. Keep going to the right until you find Jeremiah, just about a quarter of an inch over to the right. You'll find Jeremiah. Look at chapter 15. Jeremiah 15, verse 16. You might want to 
draw a circle around this one or something. Jeremiah said, thy words were found. The people need to go there. Thy words were found. You've got to find them first. Thy words were found, and I did eat them. I listened. I received it. And thy words were unto me two things. Your word, O God, is to me as an individual. It is the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. Two Hebrew words, joy and rejoicing, that express emotion. Yeah, and spinning around. Woo! And people do that a lot. I remember days when people would interrupt you while you were preaching. You're preaching the word. It was tasted so good they liked it. They just start clapping. I remember one time in a Christian church out in Oklahoma. It was a good night. Now, it was a good meeting. It was lively. They were lively. The singing was lively. And it made the preacher lively. You got to preaching and things just flow. I mean, things you didn't plan to say, they just sort of flow. And things start fitting together and they just flowed out. Just, it was an anointing that people drew out. And they stopped one time. They got to shouting. Two or three of them, one in particular, got out in the aisle and said, Woo! Glory to God! And then sat back down. <laughs> and I laughed like you're laughing. <laughs> in a Christian church? Maybe a Pentecostal church, but a Christian church? <clears throat> Oh, you know, but this was a different place. There are people who are so moved by the Word of God. Even though they've heard the same thing 50,000 times, it's so good. It's just like that song that we sang in Vacation Bible School. Sing them over again to me. Wonderful words of life. Words of life and beauty. Strength and duty and all that. Beautiful words, wonderful words. That's what the Word of God is supposed to be. And you get a taste of that, you want to hear more of it, and you'll want to praise God. Have you ever heard somebody singing on a, in your car by yourself or nobody could see you? And they were singing the gospel song, and you said, Yeah! Or, Woo! Have you ever, ever done that? I remember once going through a trial... Psalms uh, 3, I think he said, Many are they who say of my soul, There is no help for him in God in the course. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, the glory and the lifter of my head. And yeah! Now, I wouldn't do that down at a coffee shop or in a clothing store because that's not the kind of music they would play anyway. The music they play is, in my opinion, pretty dead. Same old thing. All right, I do apologize. I'm sorry. All right. But tasted the good word of God. Paul, when he met the elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, he said, And now, brethren, Verse 32, I think he said, And now, brethren, I commend you to the Word of God, which is able. This Word? Yeah. Which is able. Has this ability, this latent power within it to do two things. It is able to build you up 
Is there any person that doesn't need that occasionally? To be built up? Of course we do. Spiritually, a lot of people just drag. I don't need to be built up. I've heard that before. And there's people who say, sing it again, brother. Sing it again, Sam. Play it again. But he said that he would cause us to be commended to the Word of God. And he said, which is able to build you up and... I got a sermon I'm working on about a promise in the Bible that is a total stranger to man. This would be almost a stranger right here. Is able to build you up and give you the inheritance. It's all in the Word of God. No interest, no inheritance. Casual interest. Amen. Dig in there and find it. It's like finding a pearl of great price. It's like finding a treasure hidden in the field. You sell everything to get it. That's what it's like. That's what happens. And finally, fifthly, back in Hebrews 6 and verse 5, and have tasted of the, of the good word and of the powers of the world to come. Anytime heaven moves on the earth, something of another kingdom has come into this world. The powers of the world to come are the powers that are beyond the ordinary. The powers of the world to come, 2 plus 2 can mean whatever it has to. 2 plus 2 can mean 10,000. Down here, 2 plus 2 can only be 4. The powers of the world to come can make everything that is biologically impossible, possible. It is impossible to walk on water because of all that stuff you learn in math class about mass and so forth. And you cannot walk on water because of the weight of your body and that and so forth. But that means nothing to heaven. That is a meaningless equation to God. For if walking on the water is the only way to get to a boat, then you walk on the water. He made it. So he walked on the water. How do you suppose Jesus walked on water? He just walked. He just walked on the water. Well, that's impossible. Just like in the days of Jeremiah, man borrowed an axe and the axe head flew off in the water. Remember that? Now, iron sinks. Most of the time, I don't know how boats float, but big ships float, but iron sinks. And this guy said, oh, I've lost the axe. And the old prophet said, Where's the handle? Pitched it out there, and the axe handle came, came up, and there it is. Well, that's not possible. Well, it's not supposed to be worldly possible. It's the invasion of another world. Another world has come to the earth. It's supposed to be. Oh, you wait till the new world comes. Satellite 200 miles in the air, 200 miles. It's not even on the second floor of a 1,500-mile-high city. 1,500 miles high. What is out there? It's going to be wonderful. But taste of the powers of the world to come. Turn to Ephesians 3, and we'll commence closing. If you're from another place, then we will begin to close. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. 
And now unto him that is able. Where is him from? He's a heavenly gift, isn't he? Then he came from heaven. Capital H. I don't know why they don't put capitals in these books. but Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or think according to the power that works in us. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it should be with us. Look in chapter 1. In chapter 1, in verse 18. Again, we read this every week. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what is the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and, verse 19, what is exceeding greatness of His power to us. Usward. Who believe. If you don't believe, that's just a verse of Scripture. But if you believe, this is what you can have. This is the way it's supposed to be. You're supposed to believe and you're supposed to have this. According to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him in His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and all the names that are named and every other opposition to God there is. One power above all powers, the power of God. And that power is given to you. That's the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to walk in that kind of power. We're supposed to have knowledge of that in our lives as we go through this life. This is the way it is supposed to be. Now, if a man has touched all of these things, become aware in the charismatic movement, they would often call it. Become aware of these five things. Been around it enough to have seen it and agreed with it, followed some of it, maybe even been used of God to do some things. Back to Hebrews 6. Are you there? Hebrews 6. If they've done all of that, been there, done that, and so forth. Verse 6. If they shall fall away. Now you've got to start with verse 4. For it is impossible. And jump down to this. For it is impossible... Somebody that's done all this, if they shall fall away to be renewed again, it'll be impossible. I'm just saying that what the Bible says is true. I didn't write it, and I am glad to be a part of it. If they shall fall away, if they shall just walk away from it and give it up, turn to something else is giving up, turning away. I'll say it again because I'm seeing it. Where I never thought I would. Just in the speech that I hear in, in some places. Once knew better, but have gone back to an old way that they thought they walked away from. They really never walked away from it. Did they? When Peter left all to follow Jesus, he was a fisherman, had a boat. When Peter left all to follow Jesus, I assumed he walked away from his boat. I mean, he followed Jesus. You can't do anything else if you're going to follow him. Not the way he called them. They didn't have time to go back and do other stuff. They had a kingdom that they were supposed to go. And yet when Peter hit a wall, denied the Lord, you know what he did? He went back to his boat. That's where Jesus found him, fishing. In his boat. Back where he was, grieved. 
Peter never just gave up on the Lord. His heart was broken and grieved. What am I going to do? He doesn't love me anymore. He's already rejected me. And I'm out of this thing. I might as well go back to my boat. My heart is broke. And Jesus came. While Peter had a decline in his life and what we would call backslid, he didn't turn away from God. I know people that have come back to the Lord, even while they were in their sin, their mind was still, oh God. And in the goodness and the kindness and the favor of God, he brought them back. And he's doing it yet today. Still will. And closing, let me say this. What he said, for example, in Hebrews 6, 9, that this is the way it should be with us. We're persuaded of better things if you here in Shelbyville Christian Assembly. We're persuaded of better things. What if I said, come on, folks. Listen to what you've heard. Quit giving up so easy. Quit looking for another way out. Quit dreading tomorrow. Quit being afraid of what you got to do today. You're not alone. You got help. Whether you want to talk about the Holy Spirit who is with you, assigned to walk with you. There are angels that are given charge over your life. And the Lord said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. You're not alone. God knows your problem, knows your circumstances, the situation. He knows what the solution is. And if you'll walk long enough and trust Him, He'll give it to you. Quit looking away. It's not a good thing. Because the way it's supposed to be, folks, we should be hungry. We should be informed. We should be word-loving, overcoming, spirit-led, fruit-bearing saints. This is the way it's supposed to be. So they'll never have to say about us, Oh, boy, you messed up now. Actually, nobody has messed up. Until it's over. Until it's finally over. I'm just saying a lot of indicators that I see are that people are already making the wrong decision about trying to live a more comfortable life. In the last days, I don't know if you can. Peaceful with God, yes. Trusting God, yes. Believing God and experiencing God, yes, yes, and yes. But a life without difficulty, no. Because you're being put to the test. So that you can find out what you believe. God already knows. He knows everything. You don't know and the devil doesn't know. And you're both about to find out. Hold fast. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus. There's not a heart. And a mind in this room that you don't know everything about them. You know our thoughts, the intentions of our lives. You know what we're doing. There's nothing hidden from you. Nothing. And Father, I ask you in the name of Jesus to bring hope and opportunity to everybody sitting in this room today. That if you're still here and you're still breathing and you've never crossed over, you certainly can. When Jesus calls, respond, for he brings you to a life of eternal bliss. Though now for a season, if necessary, you're in heaviness through many kinds of trials. Because your faith will be put to the test. 
God, give us that confidence that we should have. Lead us in this way that is everlasting. Bless your people here today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.